You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. General election ballots arrived early in the mailboxes of Hawaii voters. It's the countdown to the big day. We have with us Jerry Burris, a former political reporter and editorial page editor for the Honolulu Advertiser, to talk about what's at stake come November 3rd. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. Now, the big news this week, uh, the results of a poll that show uh, mayoral candidate Rick Bangiardi in the lead. Oh, yes, far, far in the lead. This is, you're talking about the Civil B poll. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it, the numbers are such that uh, it would be hard for uh, Keith Amamiya to make them up, although there are there's about, I think, 19% undecided, which if they all broke for Amamiya, then, then it could be a race. But it's looking kind of doubtful at this point. We're going to see a lot of spending and a lot of uh, kind of, you know, last-minute almost hysterical spending in the last couple of days trying to turn that around. Big media blitz. Yes, a huge media blitz. Now, uh, I think the Star Advertiser uh, had a story about how uh, the city clerk says that a lot of the the uh, ballots have already been returned, and, and it's a pretty high amount. Yeah, isn't that amazing? I think I think part of that is is you know the national news is telling people get your ballots in early because who knows what the post office is going to do or there could be some, you know some problem here and there or something so everyone is jumping on the bandwagon and getting it in the other thing about that though besides just concerns that their ballot not might get in in time the second thing is is at least in the big races i think most people have made up their minds certainly in the presidential race you'd be hard put to find someone who's still trying to decide whether they want trump or, or biden you know i don't think so well, I know in the Honolulu mayoral race, I have yet to cast a vote. I can't make up my mind, so I'm part of the undecided. Well, that's why there's 19% undecided. That's that's fairly high number at this late stage in the go, you know, to have, you know, about a fifth of the voters still trying to decide. And that's, I think, because neither Blanchardi nor uh, Amamiya have any kind of a public record, you know, political public record for people to kind of base their judgment on. Yeah. A and B... Um, technically, they're both nonpartisan, so that people can't just reflexively vote Democrat or Republican if they don't have any other way to decide. It, it is curious because they are two neophytes, you know. And if you look at the races uh, for the Honolulu City Council, um, we already have a number of uh, of veteran politicians seated <laughs> on the council, and there may be a few more that may be added to the mix. There may be a few more. It's going to mean. You, you know, if, I don't know. I haven't added up the years, but if you added up the years of, uh, let's assume for the moment that, uh, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but assume that uh, that um, Willie Asuero prevails over uh, Agitulba, and Calvin Say is already in there, and Andrea Topola is already in there, are you going to add up the uh, legislative experience of and Ann Kobayashi already on the council? It's going to be over 100 years of political experience packed into the council. Right, and you've got Councilmember Carol Fukunaga, who was a, yeah, a, a, a state lawmaker, and she uh, walked over across the street. That's right. So, I mean, you have, let's say there's more than 100 years or 120 years of political experience in the council uh, facing zero years of political experience in the mayor's office. Yeah, it's going to be... That's going to make for some fun, I think. Yes, it's going to be an uh, interesting uh, Honolulu holiday to be covering if you're a journalist, I must say. Now I don't think I don't know I don't think the candidates have really been pushed to the wall about who they favor for mayor or who they would support and and so that's that's going to revolve once once everyone gets in there and the factions line up and they decide who they belong to and then we'll see whether the mayor has enough of a majority to get anything done out of the council. 
And uh, we also uh, have the interesting dynamic of gender uh, because, uh, you know, we do have a, a, a Heidi uh, Suniyoshi over uh, on the North Shore. Yep. And if uh, in the race, in the Kailua race, if Esther Kiana gets in over Greg Sealand. She's looking ahead in the polls, too. Yes. So you may have uh, predominantly uh, more women on that council. I think it's about time, don't you? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> this is the year where women, uh, the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of the women's yeah. right to vote. So uh, it, it would be, uh, it would only be fitting. I mean, it's not, it's not that uh, men haven't had their shot, you know. Yes, and, you know, we have had a, a female mayor with Eileen Anderson. Oh, um, yes. Well, you know, actually, if you, if you talk about Hawaii, and at one time we had female mayors in all four counties at the same time. Yeah, that's we stunning. Had, we had a, a female lieutenant governor running for governor, you know, legitimately with a good shot at it. We had female members of Congress and a female senator. So Hawaii has a long record of gender, fairly even gender voting. So time for the council to catch up with the rest of it. Yeah, and uh, we did have a Republican female governor, so um, yep. that's another first. So, yeah, so I think, I think Hawaii, in terms of gender voting, is, is fairly, you could say it has a fairly good reputation. And it would be interesting if the council turns out to be predominantly female, whether that changes anything. Right, and we'll have to be watching to see how well they work with the new mayor, whoever that happens to be. Yeah, the new mayor, whoever Rick, Rick Panjardi happens to be. <laughs> <laughs> now, what about the ballot initiatives? Oh, boy. No one pays any attention to those. But, you know, I think in some way there should be more attention paid. I mean, a lot of them are, are, are housekeeping or ministerial, and, you know, you know shall the shall the Department of Agriculture have blah, 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 or something, or, you know, very kind of just tinkering with the edges. But a couple of them on Oahu, on Maui, and elsewhere uh, reflect really sharp, you know, big problems that they're trying to solve. I mean, you look at Oahu. The, uh, they have two on the Ethics Commission. One is that they can control their own budget, and one is that their, their appointees will not be locked into the civil service system. Well, that's a direct result of the fight that went on about between the Ethics Commission and the mayor's office and even the council to some degree over, um, you know, the, the, the Chuck Tato at the, at the Ethics Commission was starting to really go after people. And so the first thing that happened is his budget was yanked and, and he was put on a short leash. And so these are, this is a reaction to that. The other one, obviously, is, is the term limits for a city prosecutor. I mean, I think people, I think, realize that uh, Keith Kaneshiro was getting so locked in that he was going to be prosecutor for life. So it makes sense that they put term limits on him on that office, just like they do on the mayor's office and the other offices. What about on the neighbor islands? Because I, I think there's a move to kind of limit uh, terms there as well. It, yeah, that's a common theme around the neighbor islands is term limits. And that's a citizen revolt kind of a thing. It's, hey, wait a minute. We don't want you guys to be in there forever. And, you know, it's, it's more, it's a deprofessionalizing of the political class by imposing term limits or insisting on term limits. I mean, even though, Many offices already have it. It's, it. That's kind of a symbol of people wanting to, to, you know, change change the, the faces every so often. Right. Don't get too comfortable in that. Don't seat. get too comfortable. Yeah. And don't forget, we have a mayor's race on the Big Island too, with Mitch Roth and uh, and. Uh, Ikaika Marzo. Yeah, Ikaika Marzo, who's very popular, but uh, I think uh, Roth seems to have the upper hand there. Right. And then on the ballot initiatives on Maui, some really interesting questions. 
You know, the one about the one that's on agriculture, shall there be a Department of Agriculture? I think what that is is a lot of the people on the Maui Council were, were kind of driven by the GMO issue. And I think their hope and belief is that if you have a separate Department of Agriculture, it won't just support agriculture in general, but will support agriculture that is non-GMO. And I think that would be. I think that's what you're going to see if that thing passes. There's a strong advocate in within the bureaucracy against uh, genet- genetically modified crops. The one thing that I thought was interesting is the move to try and uh, have the council have some power uh, as to who gets named as managing director. Oh, that's a classic power struggle thing. If that thing passes, there's basically two mayors, and one mayor is elected by the people, and the other mayor is is chosen. Uh, in cooperation with the mayor, the elected mayor, but also with a strong influence of the council on it. So they have, they have their own man there appointing department heads and, and making decisions. So that's a, that's a power grab by the council. Right, that could get messy. And we'll just have to see uh, what happens come November 3rd. Well, we will see. All right, well, thanks or so November much. November 4th or 5th or 6th, depending okay. when the ballots are all counted. All right, thanks so much, Jerry. Okay, take care. We've been talking to Jerry Burris, former political reporter and editorial page editor for the Honolulu Advertiser and a former staff writer for Hawaii Business Magazine. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Hokusai's Mount Fuji, featuring the Ukiyo-e print series, 36 views of Mount Fuji displayed one at a time. HonoluluMuseum.org. We all know there are plenty of things that are wrong in the world. But are there things that are going right? Documenting the facts of human progress is not the same as saying bad things can never happen again. Quite the contrary. A counterintuitive take on the state of the world in 2020, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7, following says you. KHPR Honolulu, KKUA Wailuku, KANO Hilo, KHPH Kailua Kona, KIPL Lihue, and KJHF Kuala Pu'u. We're staying with the political theme this morning, but moving back in time a bit, thanks to our partners at the Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. We'll hear the voices of some of the key figures involved in one of the most dramatic changes in Hawaii's political history, the election of 1954. That was a powerful wave, sweeping Republicans out of power and putting both the State House and the Senate in the hands of the Democratic Party. We're joined this morning by State Representative Roy Takumi, who served in the legislature since 1993. He served in the Air, uh, Hawaii Air National Guard and represents Hawaii's 35th district covering the Pearl City, Waipio area. Good morning. Oh, thank you. Yeah, good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I, I know uh, that you served on a panel with Governor George Oriyoshi talking about, you know, this very theme. Uh, and so we'll, we're going to begin with some thoughts from Governor Oriyoshi, who points out that the revolution of 1954 had its roots in the Second World War and the local boys who went to fight it. One of the things I'm very grateful for is veterans who went to war and came back and didn't say, oh, we're going to bask in our glory. 
they came back and they look at now look at Hawaii you have to look at what kind of state they came back to and they came back and found a lot of unfairness here in this community and they participated in government and took over control of the legislature for the first time in the history of the entire territory government was controlled legislature controlled by the veterans Democrats came back they got me involved I was one of the younger ones but I had the, became the youngest member was that 1954 political revolution when it took over for the first time. And what we did was we wanted to create fairness and equity for all the people of Hawaii. And if the government, the veterans, come back had not participated, I do not know whether we would have been to create that. And Noe, Bak Matsunaga, Rosho Kono, Masato Doi, getting involved in that 1954 election. And I was the youngest member of that group. And we brought about it. We created all the qualities in Labor laws and land laws and housing laws made it possible for Hawaii to be a fairer, a better place. And that's how you believe it changed Hawaii? Yes. Veterans fighting the war, but coming back, fighting for justice and fairness in Hawaii. So, Representative Takumi, what do you think when you, when you hear those words from our former governor? Yeah, well, you mentioned that I sat on a panel with the governor, and I recall he was talking about the 1954 Democratic Revolution, and I was asked to comment on it, and my thought at that time was, you know, sort of like being asked to talk about the Emancipation Proclamation when Abraham Lincoln's on the same panel. I mean, you hear it straight from the person who lived that history. And one thing that I know Governor Ariyoshi always talks about, but he didn't mention in that short clip, was about the GI Bill. When all these guys came back uh, from the war, they obviously qualified to go to college on the GI Bill. Many of them would have not been able to afford it. And so, and they were very young. Um, in 1954, George Arioche was 28 years old. Danny Noe was 30 years old. Uh, Spart Moksanaga was on the older side. He was an uh, old 38-year-old uh, guy. <laughs> but these are the people, these veterans that returned back, went to college, went to law school, and decided that one way to change Hawaii was through the political scene, and that's why we saw 1954. And, you know, to help set up some of the other voices fighting for justice and fairness in Hawaii, we're joined by uh, HPR News Director Bill Dorman. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Catherine. You know, and uh, as Representative Takumi was talking about, any story about the revolution of 1954 has to include the GI Bill and before that the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, largely second-generation Japanese-Americans, NISA, came back from the war, went to law school, then came a move into politics in opposition to the Republicans who had held power for so long here and the interests of the Big Five, the, the sugar and the pineapple interests that drove so much of the political influence of what was still a territory at that point. John Ushijima was one of those returning Nisei. He was born in 1924 in Hilo, got his law degree at George Washington Law School in D.C., and was elected to the state senate in 1959, later serving as senate president. When he did this interview in 1989, he spoke not only of his own experience, but that of many of his fellow veterans. What was the general feeling among the veterans coming back about Hawaii and about the future of Hawaii and their role in Hawaii? Well, I think uh, whenever you go away, you see Hawaii in a little different perspective. And invariably, you know, you uh, get to sit down and discuss things and you talk about what you're going to do, what's going to happen when you get back there. And uh, I think most of us felt that uh, we want to come back and uh, do something 
worthwhile, something to change the economic, social areas that, that we felt should be uh, changed. And I think that's the reason why so many of them decided that perhaps law was a vehicle that they should get into. At that time, uh, Hawaii was predominantly Republican. And you had the plantation mentality. You had the big five mentality. With the limited amount of education that we had at that time, just out of high school, I think we knew that something was not right, that um, people have been restricted insofar as fulfilling their aspirations. And um, the funny thing is that when you get away, you look at things in a little different light. You know, the perspective is a little different. Hawaii is just a small little place in the Pacific. You'll think of things that you can do to perhaps better the uh, general welfare of the people. And I think there was this burning desire to change things and do it uh, in an evolutionary way, not through revolution, you know. And, uh, and there were those elements when I came back, you know, the unions became very aggressive and they wanted to change overnight and things of that sort. I think we were more along thinking that things could be done through the political arena. I think that's the reason why so many of us came back and said in 1954, it was the first time that uh, when they were ready to run for office. And this is where I think the whole impetus began. People got interested in politics. People got involved. Uh, things were just right. Because up to that point, of course, you know, Hawaii was a pretty closed society. Uh, everything was tokenism. The supervisory people were more republicly inclined. The rank and file were more democratically inclined. So you could see that cleavage very easily. So what we really wanted to do was uh, open up that society a little more so that we had a little better mobility based upon, based upon uh, ability. And to a certain extent, I think we did it. That opening up, that increased mobility, another participant in that whole process, William S. Richardson. He served as Chief Justice for 16 years, long enough so that his nickname became CJ, but long before that became um, came service in the Army during the war, not as part of the 442nd. You'll hear more about that shortly. He was born in Honolulu in 1919, mixed ethnicity, Native Hawaiian, Chinese, European. He graduated from the Cincinnati College of Law. And after some time in private practice as an attorney, in 1962, he was elected lieutenant governor in the John Burns administration before becoming chief justice in 1966. The interview you're about to hear was recorded with Dan Tuttle in 1990 when Richardson reflected on the shifting nature of political affiliation in Hawaii. My father had been a Democrat, but you know, you, you didn't dare tell anybody you were a Democrat. <laughs> My wife's family, Rock Ridge, Republican, at first, she had to go around explaining and apologizing for the actions of her husband, who's a Democrat. And it really didn't mean that much because the Democrats had nothing anyway. There was no Democratic Party to speak of. And you were uh, young, right out of law school. You were also Hawaiian, whereas a lot of these other young young men were, were more or less Japanese. Yeah. Um, did, did, did Burns 
come out directly to you and say, well, you know, we want you to talk to yeah. Hawaiian people? Yeah, he wanted me to recruit Hawaiians into the party. I think that was his main assignment <laughs> to me, get the Hawaiians interested in the party and make them Democrats. How successful I was, I don't know. Well, mm -hmm. historically, Hawaiians and part of Hawaiians had been tended to be Republicans, right? Yes. Well, the Democratic Party had a lot of trouble with so-called communists of today. Did that affect you, or were you, well, were you that's, that tied that's, to the party yet? That's what split the party some. Uh, I was so new at that time, I didn't know exactly what happened. But I do remember uh, Rice from, from Kauai. I think the convention started in the morning, and uh, by noontime, I could see Charlie Rice, I think it was, or his brother, saying, I can't stand this any longer, I'm leaving. And then it was a question of who is going to follow him out, you know. And uh, a number of them followed him out, but it was a minority, and we carried on then, and I, I got my first schooling on, on what uh, politics was was like, and they took on the, the hard problems of the day and pounded out a program that uh, was the program for the next 25 or 30 years. Yeah, well, this came about in 52, I believe. Did you realize as you went from 52 to 54, or did you have any real notion that you're going to have a great victory such as you had in 54? Well, we knew it was coming sooner or later. We didn't mm. know it was going to come that, you know, in, in, uh, such a great majority would come all of a sudden. You know, we were fighting it out just to get more Democrats. All of a sudden, everybody wanted to run seemed to, to win. It was a coming together of, of the 442 boys that now had returned from, from law school. And the hard work of, of Burns, I would say, in, in picking them virtually when they got off the boat joined the Democratic Party and start working for it. After we won, there were only three Republicans and 12 Democrats. And almost all 12 didn't know exactly what was going on, but we knew what we wanted to do and how we were going to do it, we weren't exactly sure. Boy, that moment in time, really inspirational. You hear that, that talk about wanting to, to change the world and, and change Hawaii. I know, that just, uh, I don't know, gives me goosebumps, really, to listen to this. It does, but it's, it's also, there's such a positive aspect of that, that politics today, you know, gets, gets weighted down with so much other stuff. It's, it's really, I go back to the word inspirational, to hear these guys talk about wanting to make life better. And they did. Representative Takumi, you want to jump in here? What are you struck by as you hear these voices? Well, you know, these are obviously voices from the past that still have relevance today, and it really resonates with me. Um, but I would caution that we have to resist the urge to put complex historical developments in a simplistic, ahistorical context. You know, let me give you an example. You know, people, um, clearly the Civil Rights Movement didn't start in 1955, and Rosa Parks decided she wasn't going to sit in the back of the bus. And the groundwork for the Civil Rights Movement was laid for many, many years, and it that was a symbol that kind of um, kind of exploded, just like Black Lives Matter that we see today. Um, 
C.J. Richardson reflected that they weren't sure how they were going to effectuate change, and that's true, because those who were part of the party uh, campaign of 1954 at the time didn't feel that it was the mother of all campaigns, that they were on the verge of changing the face of Hawaii. It was a fairly slow historical continuum. You know, you could make the argument that the 54 revolution had its roots in many developments that occurred decades earlier. For example, surely the passage of the National Labor Relations Act of 1935 played a key role since it would not have been the ILWU, a union that grew from 900 members in 1944 to 30,000 members in 1947 and clearly was the backbone of the party in 1954. We could mention the 1949 dock strike that lasted 177 days and really showed the contradictions for um, workers and management and the big five. Um, the Smith Act trial in the early 50s, the movement for statehood, and so on. But it goes without saying that there are several major differences. I mean, I'm struck between the politics of 1954 and the politics of 2020. And I was two years old in 1954, so I don't really remember, but I grew up in the 50s and the 60s in Hawaii. But if you look at the political environment, they had the big five. Uh, we have the small 500, basically. They had 52 years of Republican control, and right now we have had 58 years of Democratic control. They had the black and white issues of the day. You know, one of the first things they did was to abolish the death penalty in 1957, um, abolished uh, English standard schools by 1962, issues today are a little more complex and not as black and white as um, as it was back in the day. The economic environment. Um, Hawaii was a fairly simple, not simplistic, uh, but a very uh, easy place to live. Uh, less than 200,000 tourists came to Hawaii in 1954. Um, we all know in 2019 we had 10 million tourists who are clearly far more part of the global economy than in the past. And the demographic environment. In 1954, AJAs um, like um, uh, Mr. Ushijima uh, comprised 37% of the population. Today it's 14%, and um, obviously that 14% is far more affluent in real terms than their grandparents. And of course, the big one is technology. You know, I'm old enough to remember when we all had one TV at home, a black and white TV, and one phone. Um, and you could get in any color as long as it was black, and it was a landline. And if you wrote a letter and uh, you got a response in a week, you're, you're very happy. Today, if someone doesn't reply to your text in a few minutes, you get irritated. You want it now. I mean, we even microwave instant coffee. I mean, that's, that's how impatient we are. But that said, it's been written that the Democrats' victory in 1954 meant that for the first time, um, the composition and complexion of the territory's legislature closely resembled the community at large, and that should not be uh, minimized at all. I guess I'm struck by you know the fact that you had these veterans that became lawyers and became politicians. Yeah, that that link, you know, talking about those links between the law and political activism, strong throughout so so many stories of of different people coming back, including another returning Army veteran, Robert C. Oshiro. He was born in Wahiwa in 1924 after military service. He got his law degree from Duke University in 1953. 
He was elected to the State House in 1959, stayed there until 1970, also served as a campaign strategist to various campaigns. In 1988, he talked with Dan Tuttle and our occasional guest here, Chris Coneybear, and he spoke about the importance of bringing a different perspective to a political world very much in change. I was very interested in these so-called society from the standpoint, when, when you're looking at labor, you're looking at labor management. But there's more to society than just labor management. What about the others? And those are the questions that uh, stimulated me. When you got back from law school, as I recall, you got into politics. Uh, well, first of all, you set up your own private practice out in Wahiawa, right? And, and then uh, got involved in politics uh, just before the 54 election. Well. Yeah, that I came back with one conviction that as a lawyer, I had an obligation to, to join a political party. And of course, in my case, it was Democratic Party. I got involved really in 53 mm -hmm. uh, as a precinct president, which is the lowest unit in the political system. What was campaign work like in that, for you, out in the country in that? 54 campaign. Well, oh, at that time in 54, um, a great deal of it was, was putting together rallies, which was the primary vehicle for campaigning at that time. As you know, uh, those were the days when you didn't spend any money, really. For m you, you had no real television, uh, very little radio, if any. Uh, as far as print is concerned, it was just simple brochures, homemade stuff. So your primary activity was rallies and uh, the so-called coffee hours to get the candidate to meet the people. The 54 campaign was an exciting one. I think in 54 that gave us hope, tremendous hope, that this is the avenue that we should work towards if we want to bring about changes, whether it's political, economic, or social. And that reinforced the thinking of many of us youngsters at that time had, um, resulting from our exposure to the so-called the World War II experience. The hardest election for me was 1962 or thereabouts, when I voted a, against a bill that RLW wanted. And I come from an RLW district. And they came after me with hammering tongs in my second, second election. And I had to bypass the leadership and get down to the grassroots members that practically explain to them one-on-one, -on -one, you know, what this is all about. So you can get to that membership, but uh, it's, it's difficult. Ultimately, what you're doing is you're, you are buying a person, the character, whatever his character he has, everything about a human being. If that guy is going to has no value, the value is different from yours, well, that, that's the value you're buying if you, if you get him elected. Robert C. Oshiro speaking there, part of the oral history tapes this morning. William Quinn, you know, we've been talking, hearing from Democrats so far in our voices from the Center for Oral History, but the first elected governor of the state of Hawaii was a Republican. William F. Quinn, born in Rochester, New York, 1919. He served in the Navy in the war, moved to Hawaii in 1947 where he practiced law for 10 years before being appointed governor in 1957 and then winning election in 1959. He lost his bid for re-election to Jack Burns in 1962. 
He spoke in 1988 to Dan Tuttle and Chris Coney Bear and talked about how he became a Republican. O.P. Suarez was chairman of the Republican Party, and this was right after Dewey had lost to Truman. So they were going to have a Lincoln Day gathering, and uh, O.P. says, will you be our chief speaker? Sure, okay. I went to the <laughs> the library, got a few books on Lincoln, <laughs> because it's Lincoln Day talk, I'm going to talk about Lincoln, <laughs> which I did. And uh, so suddenly I was a Republican. So you got recruited as a Republican just to make, to, to make the to speech. Make Lincoln Day so speech with that, I became a Republican. <laughs> well, let's move along here as rapidly as we can. Uh, all of a sudden, from the joys of statehood, or all of the friction that may have been involved, you were suddenly placed in a position where you had to make up your mind whether you were or were not interested in becoming the first state governor of Hawaii. Yes. What was that agenda that you thought was... Well, at the top of the heap, I learned as soon as I got in there, if I hadn't known it as a citizen, was that Oahu was very prosperous. The neighbor islands were just dying on their feet for several reasons. One, uh, sugar was mechanizing, contracting its employment. Pineapple plantations were being closed, and there was like 12, 13, 14% unemployment and a reducing population on every neighbor island. And so I said, something's got to be done about this. And so starting, uh, first thing I did uh, as a territorial governor is to make a, my own decision, I guess, that for the near term, uh, tourism was the answer. And uh, we didn't have any tourist facilities. We had Kona Inn, that was about it. And so I, I put together a top-level group, and it had private people, it had contractors, it had financiers, it had planners uh, and uh, architects, and it was a group of about 15. And I said, I want you to make a study of the neighbor islands, of all of the, of the territory and tell me where are the best tourist destination areas. It concluded and, and gave me a good report in about six, eight months that there were about 21 places that they labeled triple A in various islands, each one of which was larger than Waikiki. But they didn't have water or roads in some cases. And so I started my capital projects agenda to use the state effort to develop the roads, and in some cases, harbors or airports or whatever is necessary, to try to open up these areas. And uh, look around the state today, and every one of them that is developed is, is one of those areas that was designated. William Quinn, former governor, talking there about his role in developing tourism in the islands. And interesting that in 1957, for the near term, tourism was the answer. Yeah. Amazing. Huh? What do you think, Representative Jigumi? Yeah, and here we come full circle. Um, people questioning whether or not our over-reliance on tourism has actually been a negative thing and um, never let a pandemic go to ways, I guess, that people are really reflecting as we move forward in the next two, three to four years, how we're going to recalibrate the economy in Hawaii. I think the point about values that Babu Shio made is spot on. Um, I remember reading about uh, Governor Yoshi's first meeting with uh, Governor Burns, and um, 
George Ariosha was just out of law school. As I mentioned, he was 28 years old. And um, Jack Burns looked at uh, George Ariosha and said, you should run for office. And I mean, the guy's 28 years old. And um, Ariosha um, said that he thought he was talking to someone else. And he turned around to see if there was someone behind me, but no one was there. So he fixed me with a look and said, you should run for office. And uh, Ariosha said, my response was, I'm too young. Nobody knows who I am. And uh, Governor Burns said, uh, it's not the age, it's the heart, it's how you feel. And uh, that's really true then, and it's really true now. In other words, it's about your values, the way you look at the world, and your character. Um, Governor Quinn's comments, uh, really, my observation is that it was a real different time back in the 50s and 60s. Um, government back in the day and today, uh, we are quickly becoming the disunited States of America. And uh, look, there's always been a partisan gap, a gender gap, racial gap, class gap, and so on. But the divide is as sharp as it's ever been in modern times. Um, now, the Civil War was really a sharp divide, but I'm talking about in modern times, uh, we see this big partisan and political divide in our country. And I remember talking to some of the old timers that served in the legislature back in the 60s and so on. And I've heard time and time again is how they got along despite political differences, because they all had the same goal. They wanted to have a Hawaii that really helped people, that pushed the state forward and so on. They may have different philosophies or different ideologies on how to get there, but they all had a common goal. Um, and that was true at the national level. I think we, we forget that when Social Security passed in 1935, 81 Republicans in the House voted for it. And when Medicare passed in 1965, 70 Republicans in the House voted for it. And I think we all know how many Republicans voted for the Affordable Care Act in 2010. Not one. Not one because it was the whole framing of it was we can use this as a wedge issue as we go into the elections and try to pit our position, which was no health care essentially, with what the Democrats are doing. No one, no one was willing to rise above their partisan differences and and remember, as um, Governor Quinn and the other Republicans back in the day um, kept in mind that we're all here for the common good and try to improve the quality of life in Hawaii. So that's, that's uh, my observation. Well, I think with Quinn, you know, uh, beefing up the infrastructure on the neighbor islands to be able to accept, you know, tourism, and then hats off again to uh, Governor Ariyoshi for raising the issue of carrying capacity back in the day when he was in the office, and those are questions that uh, we're asking today, is what is our carrying capacity? You know, it's yeah. also, in terms of approach, in, in both of those cases, he, pragmatism, a, again, in terms of moving things forward and, and agreeing, as, uh, as Representative Takumi was saying, in, in terms of reaching that agreement so that the politics doesn't bury the policy uh, in terms of the good of the people of, of the state, in terms of being able to move forward with things. That's, you certainly heard that from, uh, from Governor Quinn talking about just that, that pragmatic approach of, of, you know, we need to develop this and, and here's an opportunity and go ahead and bring the forces together to make that happen. Anything else you want to add, Representative Takumi? No, I think um, I think you're ready to move on to the next one, one of my favorite legislators that I was privileged to serve with. 
Very good. Well, finally, our, our last voice from the Center for Oral History today is another transplant to Hawaii. And the first woman we've heard from today, Helene Hale, born in 1918 in Minneapolis, moving to Hawaii in 1947. She was a teacher in Kona, served on the Hawaii Island Board of Supervisors from 1955 to 1963, the predecessor of the county council. She then became chair and executive officer of the county, the office that today would be mayor. Uh, she returned to county council and in 2000 won election to the state house, where she served until retiring at the age of 88. She talked with Chris Coney Bear and Dan Tuttle in 1988 and started with a perspective well outside Oahu. In the neighbor islands, the Democratic Party was organized by the labor union, right. which was at that time really um, uh, getting a, a foothold on the plantations, and that's where uh, the Democratic Party was strong. It wasn't strong in Kona, and it wasn't was somewhat strong in Hilo, but mostly in the plantations, which dominated the economy of this island. In the 1950s, my husband decided to run the first constitutional convention. He was advocating the breaking up of the plantation system and selling the land in fee simple, which most of the big landowners couldn't do because their trusts had tied up their land so they couldn't sell it in the deeds and but we advocated selling the land in fee simple to the coffee farmers so they could build decent houses and and live decently and people could own their own homes of course that really shook up the establishment in kona and because i was teaching at kona Wina, they tried to put pressure on my job and you know tell me I had, he had to be quiet. I resigned my job. He didn't win in the general election, but it really shook him up. I was the first woman ever elected to a board of supervisors in the I state. I thought not only were you the first, but you kept getting reelected too, didn't you? Yeah. Well, after you once got in, it's um, a little easier. People got used to a woman. Up to that time, you see, people had not considered a supervisory job a woman's job because most of the supervisors considered themselves super road overseers. They spent their time <laughs> patching the roads, and, and I considered myself a policymaker. But I was very active in the UPW getting organized. We got the road workers to be civil service. Up to that time, they were not civil. I was concerned with these kinds of issues. I worked with the union in the old days. And the irony of it is that although I was identified with the ILWU and the UPW, they have not been very happy to support me in the future elections because as they got more independent and got more powerful, they sort of wanted somebody they could tell what to do. The plantation system was changing and you were looking at a, a rural plantation economy moving into something else. Were you involved in trying to talk about issues of development and things like that? Some of the issues we faced are haunting us today on the Board of Supervisors. Um, for instance, the rapid development of Pune into subdivisions, in which a lot of our politicians were involved. They bought big tracts of land in Pune and sliced them up into paper subdivisions without roads and without water and without utilities and sold them on the mainland because by that time Hawaii was getting known we were just about ready to get statehood and when statehood came all of this big boom everybody wanted a piece of Hawaii so you know some people made lots of money subdividing our land 
And it was a controversy, and I remember being concerned that we were allowing this to go on. But it did seem to me that we would face problems down the way if people ever came and lived on those lots. Problems down the road. Helene Hale talking there in 1988, the first woman elected to a board of supervisors in the state of Hawaii back in 1955. Representative Jakumi, you served with her. Yeah, and actually Helene was on, um, I was chairing the education committee um, at the time, and she was she was a member of that committee. And, um, you know, I don't know if it's a function of, of age or just the, the um, personality of Helene, but she was really somebody that um, she'll make up her mind and she'll make her point. And a lot of people don't realize that when uh, Helene uh, was the chair of the Board of County Supervisors was equivalent of mayor, as you mentioned, Bill. Um, she was the highest-ranking African-American in the country in the elected office. Um, she didn't mention that. And um, uh, I'll tell you one Helene Hale story that was uh, really personified who Helene was. She had a great sense of humor. We were in the caucus one day, and um, uh, people were being asked, oh, are you going to run for re-election? Because, you know, if you're not going to run, then, you know, uh, we should think about um, who can take your place. And so on. just typical election talk. And uh, Helene raised her hand and said, and she said uh, in her voice, uh, you have to hear her voice. She said, I am here for the long haul. And then she said, but in my case, it may not be that long. I mean, she had a great <laughs> sense of humor because she was in her 80s at the time. And um, um, I think all of us really miss her, the kind of contribution and her history that she brought to that um, body. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I, I do miss her. And... Um, she, she was still around. Um, you know, there are other changes that we could talk about if we had more time. Uh, the rise of money in politics, the role of the media, um, sound bites as opposed to uh, the media being really a messenger for sound bites as opposed to being the means for thoughtful community dialogue. I mean, look at USA Today. I, I always call USA Today, you know, McNuggets because there's no news story longer than, you know, um, three inches in column length or something. Um, the increase in one-issue politics and one-issue advocacy groups, the demise of organized labor, the growing disparity between the have and have-nots in this country, and all of this poses real threats to democracy and civic engagement in our country. Now, the lessons that I take away from 1954 that I try to keep in mind as I continue to be really privileged to serve in office is, one, people need something to vote for. The last primary election we'll see for the general election coming up in a few weeks uh, we had an uptick from 39% uh, two years ago to 51%. Um, but, and also keep in mind, less than 50% of those registered to vote actually voted in 1954. But what happened in the subsequent elections? In the 56 and 58 elections, the participation rate went up almost 90%. Um, started going down a little after that, but it just goes to show you because the Democratic Party at that time gave people a reason to vote. And so they showed up in almost uh, universal numbers. I mean, almost 90% is unheard of. Um, so I think the message today is that Democrats, which includes me, are going to have to stop acting like Republicans in many ways. And, um, you know, it was Truman. Uh, Truman said a famous quote back in the day. He said that given a choice between a Republican and a Republican, the people vote for Republicans all the time. And so as Democrats, and it's because really politics is at its essence a battleground of competing ideas, and the voters get to decide which of these ideas best reflect what they want for themselves and their families and the future of the country and the state. 
and um, and then so be it. They, that's what they they write that they have. Um, uh, I also think we need to be more concerned about content than message. It's not easy in the 24/7 news cycle and technology and so on. Everybody's a photojournalist. Everybody's a journalist in modern day politics. Um, messaging tends to be far more dominant than content. But finally. I think all of these really esteemed, um, you know, heroes of politics that we've had in Hawaii since the 1950s, uh, one of the things that resonates through all their comments is it's about fairness and it's about justice and it's about opportunity. And I think uh, for all of us who are continuing to serve in elective office, we can do uh, no worse than keeping those uh, thoughts in mind. Can you talk about the power of unions? Yeah, well, actually, you know, Hawaii, com- we're the second most unionized state in the country after New York, but uh, certainly, you know, you can track the development of the middle class in this country post-World War II with the rise of organized labor. Um, today, um, organized labor is relatively small. It's in the teens. It used to be very high. There were, um, and part of it is due, we don't really have a manufacturing base in this country. Remember now, Catherine, back in the day, if you worked at a steel mill or manufacturing factory, your wages, because it was union wages, you could buy a home. You could send your kids to college. Um, today, take Hawaii. 90% of Hawaii's economy is a service economy, and we really are feeling it because of the pandemic. The service economy, even though the hotel industry and certain sectors are unionized, it doesn't, cannot quite deliver the living wages that people need to buy a home and send their kids to college. And so, you know, um, but unions, like any entity, any organization in our society, they also have to be held accountable and be transparent and so on. And so, um, you know, now I support the right of workers to organize in a union. And if you look at states that have a low union participation and you look at their quality of life across the board, uh, generally, not as good as those states that have a high union concentration. You know, the the union endorsement today, you know, has a little different connotation than it did maybe in the 50s. Um, we'll see, you know, uh, how it plays out uh, come November 3rd when, uh, when the voters cast their vote. Yeah, well, obviously the big change is from the 70s on when public sector unions came into the fore, right? Prior to that, government workers are not in a union. So public sector unions tend to dominate the union landscape in the United States and in Hawaii as well. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Representative Takumi, for your very thoughtful conversation. Bill Dorman, uh, thanks so much for bringing these voices to light. And thank you, UH Center for Oral History. We do have to go now, but tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa takes you into Aloha Friday. We would love to hear from you. Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. And email works, too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find our archive shows online. Just look under HPR News and Talk for The Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. <laughs>